compassion on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we're formed. He remembers that we are but dust. As for mortals, their days are like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, Yahweh's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. Now, as, as I was reading this psalm and as I was meditating on that, that verse, that he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities, it struck me that there is an absolute need when we read Scripture, especially when we read some of these difficult passages like we find in Romans 9-11. to There's a need to bear in mind the character of God, what he's really like. Unfortunately, if we are not paying attention to what God is really like, we will start to form pictures in our own minds of what we think he is like. You remember the Far Side cartoon where God is sitting at his computer and there's a smite button and you see on the screen a guy who's about to have a piano dropped on him. Some people think of God as the great smiter, as somebody who's just sitting there around the corner just waiting to bring the smack down. You know, and there's a sense in which we do have to be aware of God's ability to execute justice. It's not untrue that we find in Scripture plenty of witness to God having power and exercising that power. We certainly see plenty in Scripture about God being just. I think if we take seriously who God is, we have to recognize that it is appropriate and proper for us to fear God. Paul reminds us at the end of Galatians that God is not mocked. And so this awareness of God's justice can lead us to remember that God is someone who can exercise that justice with power. There's a sense sometimes that that, that can be the right thing. I was just I was sitting in Fridays this week, and some people uh, came in and sat near me, and I overheard their conversation, and they were delighted because apparently somebody in the office had gotten her comeuppance. There was somebody that nobody could stand, somebody who liked to throw her weight around. Again, I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't eavesdropping NSA style on their conversation. This is just kind of what I picked up. But evidently, this was somebody that made life difficult for everybody, and this person had finally been put in her place, whether it was that she was demoted or fired, I don't know, but the one person was was all disappointed because she had to run back to her desk to get something when the meeting started, and then when she came in, the org chart was already up, and she missed the big announcement and seeing everybody's reaction. So when that happens, or when we see what's happening right now in Ukraine, it would appear that an authoritarian government is being shown the door in favor of a more democratic one. I I cannot help 
but delight in the fact that Vladimir Putin seems to be getting his comeuppance in the events that are going on in Ukraine. And there is a sense that we need to embrace the idea that God can execute justice and that he can take care of the bad guys. That's where we usually see the smiting that happens in Scripture. Now, there's some smiting that happens for other reasons. Sometimes you'll uh, see, as we've read in, in our passage of Romans, God hardened Pharaoh's heart because he was working out his purposes with respect to the way his people were going to make their exit from Egypt. We remember the story of Jesus with a man born blind, and Jesus' disciples say to him, well, who sinned so that this guy was born blind? Did he sin, or was it his parents? And Jesus is like, no, 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 it's not like somebody sinned and so he was, he was blind. Actually, he was, sinned, he was born blind because God is about to demonstrate his power through what I'm about to do. We have the famous example of Job, where, again, there seemed to be some alternate purpose for this smiting. Incidentally, I, uh, that exercise where you read Scripture and you see what verse pops out at you, I did that with Job, and for me it was Job 19.17, which reads, My breath is offensive to my wife, and I'm loathsome to my own family. So maybe that wasn't a good idea. But for the most part, the, the smiting we, we see has to do with not, not just people getting what they deserve, but, but people getting what they deserve because they did not want to embrace God enabling them not to. People who didn't want any part of God's justice or mercy experiencing only the one. The problem, though, with thinking of God as the great smiter is that it can lead you to read passages like Romans 9 to 11 as an account of why certain people, and by that inevitably we mean certain other people, have it coming to them, why God is going to be executing his just wrath on them. Now, some people get very uncomfortable with this idea of God as the great smiter, and they swing too far to the other and of God as the great grandparent who jacks your kids up full of sugar and then hands them back. You know, the, and again, there, there's, a, there's a, a, a place where we get these kinds of ideas. Just looking in Psalm 103, where, where we were, you read in, in verse 8, Yahweh is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. So he just thinks you're, you're so cute. And he just can't take his eyes off you. And so he just wants to treat you to everything he possibly can. Well, yeah, but that's not the whole story. Yes, God is loving, but it seems like we have some conditions as well. If we keep reading in verse 11, we read, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. In verse 13, as a father has compassion on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. In verse 17, from everlasting to everlasting, Yahweh's love is with those who fear him, his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenants, those who remember to obey his precepts. So there's a sense in which God's love is indiscriminate and that he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. But when it comes to having a deep and intimate knowledge 
of God's love. That comes only through fearing God, only through being one of his faithful people. And the problem with thinking of God as the great-grandparent is it can, that you can lead, lead you to read chapters 9 to 11 of Romans, especially the message of the availability of salvation to all, you can read that as going beyond what Paul actually has to say here. And you can take that and extrapolate that to some place that I don't think Paul at all would want to go. So as we bear in mind the true nature of God's character, we have to make sure that we keep out of our minds these false ideas of God as simply the great smiter, as simply the great grandparent. The third one I'll mention, and this is one that crops up from time to time, is the idea that God has split personalities, that you have the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, the wrathful, angry, irritable God of the Old Testament, and then you have this happy, clappy, gentle Jesus God of the New Testament. Part of the problem with that is if you read the Gospels, Jesus wasn't always very gentle. Jesus, in fact, seemed to get irritated quite a lot. But the other problem, of course, is that as Jesus said, he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He didn't come to repudiate this Old Testament God. He came and he said, no, I'm, I'm fulfilling them. What I am saying is absolutely in continuity with everything that God has said and everything that God has done and everything God has revealed about himself. So in a sense, what I'm bringing is something new, but in a sense, what I'm bringing is not new at all. What we find in the New Testament is a continuation of, a, a change of key in a sense, but, but it is not in any way something that turns its back on what God has revealed in the Old Testament. It is one of the most ancient heresies of the Christian church that we are supposed to separate the God of the Old from the God of the New Testament and pick the one we like. And so as we look back at Romans 9 and 10 and as we look forward to Romans 9 and 11. I just want to review what we have seen Paul establish and to take a look ahead at what he is going to establish. In the beginning of chapter 9, of course, he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. God's people, Israel, have unique privileges, Paul says. They have unique blessings. They have a unique history with the Lord of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Holy One of Israel. But, he then says, not all who are Israel are Israel. For example, those who try to be Israel, in verse 12, by works. They're not Israel. No, you get to be Israel by being called 
by God to be Israel. Verse 16, it, you don't get to be Israel. You don't get to be God's people through your desire or through human effort. It's through God's mercy that you get to be Israel. In verse 32, it is not by works that you get to be Israel. And whether those are works of moral striving or works that align you culturally with the Jewish people, these are not works that are going to make you count. It is by faith. Now, the fact that not all are Israel are Israel does not mean, Paul says, that God is unjust. Not at all. Just because we recognize that God is not simply the great smiter doesn't mean that we get to ignore the fact that he is just. But, Paul says, it may be that he's got a plan up his sleeve. What if, he says in verse 22, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, what if he bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What, what if he did this in order to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called not only from the Jews, but from the Gentiles. As we're going to see, Paul's going to work this out a little bit. What if God is actually doing something here? And then at the beginning of chapter 10, Paul goes back talking about his people, the Israelites. He says, they are zealous, but their zeal is ignorant, as we would say here in Baltimore. Their zeal is ignorant. It's not based on knowledge. And of course, that word knowledge can be used to refer to the esoteric kinds of special knowledge that some of the religious weirdos around Paul's day would have been into, knowing the right names of angels and so forth, so you can ascend to the astral plane. But I think what Paul is talking about here is the kind of knowledge that we find talked about time and time and time and time again in the Old Testament. That's the kind of knowledge that refers to an intimate, personal kind of knowledge. It's the knowledge that is referred to, in a sense, when we read Adam knew Eve and she became his wife. There's a, a sense that that knowledge has to do with knowing God deeply and intimately and personally. That's the kind of knowledge that God makes available to his people, and that's the kind of knowledge that is precisely lacking, Paul says, among these Israelites he's talking about. And he knows what he's talking about because he was one of them. This is not Paul pointing at some other group that he's not a part of. This is Paul giving his own conversion narrative. This is Paul talking about his own experience in a system that simply was not working and, he says, ultimately was counterproductive. And why was this zeal ignorant? Because it sought to establish its own righteousness rather than receiving God's zeal that was all about establishing a 
your own righteousness rather than submitting to God's and knowing that righteousness personally. This is not God's fault. After all, he has made himself accessible. He made his word, his Torah, accessible to his people. He has now made himself uniquely accessible to people through Messiah. And he hasn't just done that to the Jewish people. He hasn't done that just to the nation of Israel through whom he had originally started working. He has made himself available, made himself accessible to everybody, to Jew and Gentile alike. And so this Gentile faith, Paul says, is here, it's real, get used to it. And it's no less valuable, it's no less true, it's no less worthy than Jewish faith. The faith that these Gentiles have, Paul says, is the kind of thing that we ought to see. They've obtained this righteousness, even though they didn't pursue it, by faith. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile because the same Lord is Lord of all. He richly blesses all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But at the same time as Paul is observing this blossoming of Gentile faith, the faith in God through Jesus among the people who are not Israelites, he's at the same time is observing that Jewish faith is scarce. That his people, who Paul says would be the ones who ought to be receiving Jesus as Messiah, are most of them rejecting him. This is the situation, Paul says. And I don't think anybody would disagree with him. So that's where we are at the end of chapter 10. Paul's established that God is not unjust and God is not unavailable. The sense in which chapter 9 boils down to the fact that God is not unjust. Chapter 10 boils down that God is not unavailable. Well, chapter 11 boils down to the fact that God is not unfaithful. Paul is adamant God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. But these are people chosen by grace, not based on any works. Yes, right now, Paul says, most of his people are rejecting his ways, if not rejecting him. But this is not necessarily the end of the story, Paul says. Because God has got something up his sleeve. Look at chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? No, of course not. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. 
but if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? God is not willing to let the story end with his people disobedient and obstinate to him. He's holding out his hands, his people not seeking him, not asking for him, not following him, not knowing him. He says, no, I've got a plan, like he said at the end of 10. I'm going to make you envious by those who aren't a nation. I'm going to make you angry by a nation that is ignorant. As Paul understands what's going on in terms of the whole plan of salvation history and what God is working out. This is the best sense that Paul can make of what's happening. And and this is the story that he's telling here in Romans 9 to 11. God has brought in the Gentiles, not just because that's the kind of thing he does, not just because he is a God who is available and who is accessible, but he's doing that precisely in order to piss his people off precisely in order to make them jealous and angry and envious to get their attention precisely so that they too will come to him and because this is what God is doing Paul says and this is most of what he talks about in chapter 11 you Gentiles need to come correct these Gentiles need to stop thinking that they have something special that the Jews don't need to stop thinking that these Gentile Christians are superior in some way to these Jewish Christians in the community in Rome. Look, Paul says, you're only grafted into this tree because there are branches broken off. And if you can get grafted in, how much more easily is God going to be able to graft in these true branches that originally were part of that tree. And, you jerks, if he could break off original branches, how much easier is it going to be for him to break off these branches like you that he grafted in? Just as you, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. God's not unjust. God's not unavailable. And God's not unfaithful. And this is the story that we'll continue to explore this spring as we go through chapter 11. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we read your word, as we come to it with all the questions that we have, we pray that we would submit to what you've given us. pray that we would come not demanding answers to the questions we have, but receiving 
the answers to the questions that you pose instead. We pray that we would faithfully hear the voice of your spirit through your apostles. Pray that we would hear the story that he is telling about the way you work out your purposes. We pray that the process of doing this would draw us to know you more and more intimately, more and more deeply, to worship you more truly, live for you more faithfully. We pray that where we have misunderstandings of your character, where we have a skewed or distorted vision of who you are, that you would correct us. You would give us opportunities like the one we had in house church on Sunday night and the one that I had as I was doing my homework. To be reminded who you are and what you're like. That you are a merciful and compassionate and forgiving God. You do not treat us as our sins deserve. You don't repay us according to our iniquities if we are those who fear you. All this we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah.